0: This is not your grandma's Bible study. Welcome to Not Your Grandma's Bible Study.
1: Welcome back. I'm Jill. I'm Zach, who's drinking water.
0: And we are not your grandma.
1: I am not your grandma. Or your grandpa. It's
0: not possible. <laughs> Unless my dog has had kids. Had kids somewhere in the first six months he was alive. Because he's been sniped since then. And then those kids had kids, and then those dogs, those dog kids are listening right now. Then I might be your grandma.
1: <laughs> so, <stand> <laughs> what are we talking about today?
0: <laughs> uh, so, today we're going to take on the super interesting field of textual
1: criticism. Ooh. <laughs> Everyone's favorite topic. Everyone's, I mean, everybody's talking about it around the water cooler.
0: how do we get to the original document the original meaning the original whatever so as we go along our listeners who listen to our inerrancy episode um, might note that textual criticism is a little bit tied up into some of that we Mm -hmm. won't talk about it but you'll probably make some connections Mm -hmm. um textual criticism is part of for me, what kind of breaks down some of that inerrancy stuff. So if you're having it, you should go and listen to our inerrancy episode. We like it a lot.
1: It's a good one. It's
0: a good one. Um, okay, so the primary text that I'm using um, to be thinking about this is a book by uh, D.C. Parker. It's called The Living Text of the Gospels. Um, it is a really accessible book. Um He writes it in a way where you don't actually need to know anything about textual criticism to understand what he's saying, and that's really helpful. So the discipline of textual criticism, at least in New Testament studies, is because we don't have any of the original manuscripts, so we don't have the first written draft of the Gospel of Matthew in existence. We have some small fragments of different texts for the first few hundred years, but it's really like the late 300s, early 400s before we start seeing like full documents come together. So lots of time has passed from their original writing to when we see full full text of it. So textual critics take all of these materials and try to piece together what might be closest to the original version. Um, you might notice in your Bibles sometimes that there's like a little note that's like a variant reading is this or like we talked about with um, the Mary Magdalene episode the there there's a longer ending of Mark that's not in the earlier manuscripts Mm, and so mm -hmm. it's noted in there right but it's not in the earlier so it probably wasn't an original part of the text and so textual critics spend a lot of time doing a lot of work so that we can have a full, uh, comprehensive text of any of the New Testament documents. Um, most Greek texts of the, of the Koine Greek, not modern Greek, um, ancient Greek, um, they have all kinds of like textual apparatus to let you know why the people, these text critics made the decision that they made mm-hmm. to include whatever. But every translation of that text that you have on your shelf right now is because a textual critic made decisions for mm-hmm. you. Yep. Um, and so one of the kind of guiding principles of text criticism, at least historically, has been find the original text, get to the original. What did the author really, really write? Um, and D.C. Parker wants to argue that that's really not a helpful way to think mm. about how these different variants and traditions come up through, and so we're going to talk a little bit about um, that, but I'm going to use an art history
1: mm. approach to get there. Ooh. Ooh. So before
0: I do that, um, can you just off the cuff, because I did not ask
1: you to prepare. <laughs> no prep.
0: Um, talk a little bit about why text criticism is different for Hebrew Bible text than it is for New Testament texts.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I think one of the main reasons that Hebrew Bible scholarship is different from New Testament scholarship in this regard is because of the main one actually now is because of Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, We have actual stuff that we can date back to either just before the turn of the millennium or, you know, the the BCE, CE changeover. Um, So we have stuff from a long time ago that we can corroborate against, the second part of it, um, fairly complete uh, codexes that are codices that we have. Um, uh, I think we talked about that in yeah, the... Yeah, plural, right? In <laughs> <laughs> uh, I heard um, it. <laughs> I messed up. Ten demerits. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so Aleppo and Leningrad, um, we talked about a bit in the inerrancy episode, mm-hmm. and so those are back around 900, 1,000 CE. And so we have really complete versions, but again, um, so we have a lot of streams all feeding into it. And so I think there's a lot of ability to jump back and forth to, to, see stuff that we are reasonably sure of. Um, and again, um, the, uh, Aleppo and I think Aleppo is, um, that's the basis for the MT and then the Leningrad is, connect, is corrected against that. Um, so that, what that means is Aleppo missing stuff. The, uh, Aleppo codex is missing some texts, some pages and then Leningrad is later, but is more complete, and so it is you correct the earlier one against the later one, and so that way you have as much of a fuller picture as you can have off of that.
0: So this notion of the original in a in a Hebrew Bible text. So we talked in the inerrancy episode specifically. We I mean we referenced it anyway. Jeremiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls that comes up the text mm-hmm. of Jeremiah there is it's almost an entirely different version. Right. Um, but there's enough similarities mm-hmm. to where it, scholars consider it to be a copy of Jeremiah, but mm-hmm. it's a different version of a copy of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And so is it the case that with Hebrew Bible text critics, if you will, mm-hmm. that they're more comfortable contextualizing these variants in different communities than Christian or New Testament text critics, because, so nobody is arguing that there were different, like, sects, if you mm-hmm. will, yeah. of Judaism, so, I mean, the Qumran community, right. whoever they were, if they were the Essenes or something different, mm-hmm. the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all had kind of different approaches yep. to these scriptures, and then you have the rabbinic tradition where yep. they're all, hold, these rabbis are comfortable holding intention; tension their different approaches, whereas in the New Testament, if you didn't get on board, you were called a heretic, and we outcast you, yep. and do you think that's still... A lingering piece of what's kind of going on in finding the originals in the New Testament is because it's a heresy, orthodoxy component. Yeah. I'm shooting off the cuff here. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, that that might be. Thinking about why the questions and the problems that text critics run into for New Testament Hebrew Bible text critics are like. Meh. Yeah. So we've got two different versions. They yeah. were addressing two different communities, no big deal. Yeah. Um, and New Testament critics were like, no, 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 <laughs> they changed it. It has They're to be here. this way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: some New Testament text critics, not all. Um,
1: yeah, it's so, interesting. I don't know. Just it's interesting, days. too, that both... Camps basically have what you would call sectarianism in a sense, mm-hmm. but in one category with Hebrew Bible, it's it's just accepted and mm-hmm. preserved and allowed to exist. Whereas in the New Testament, sectarianism yeah. with the way that you know you're viewing different competing texts. Did we just
0: stumble into a brilliant? <laughs> brilliant idea I'm certain someone's
1: Someone's written on it there's a book out there
0: there's probably 14 books on it it's probably G.K. Chesterton in one of his books one time I can't remember which one it is he writes something along the lines of every time I think that I've stumbled into a brand new heresy that I can promote (laughs) I find out it's actually orthodoxy (laughs) yeah (laughs) somebody else has already like presented it and it's actually quite acceptable yeah Um,
1: it's probably what's happening anyway
0: okay so that's our little text critic bubble. And, and the kind of places in the, in the New Testament where these questions really come to the fore that D.C. Parker highlights are in Matthew and in Luke, we have two different versions right. of the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And so which one's more original mm-hmm. and authentic? Who yeah. changed it? Um, the sayings on marriage and divorce in Matthew, Mark, and Luke have enough variation to... Mm-hmm raise eyebrows about what what did Jesus actually say yeah um in John um this story of the woman taken in the act of adultery terrible way to title it but that's how you'll know it uh it is widely accepted that that is an interpolated story like it was added much later it's not part of the original gospel the language is different the theology is different. It's mm-hmm. wildly, wildly different. And then it doesn't show up until later texts or later manuscripts and copies that we get. So there's, there's no reason to think it's part of the original, but it is definitely part of church tradition and it gets preached yep. as if it is, um, part of it, it gets interpreted within the context of John, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to isolated. And so, um, it's, that's a weird example of, well, we know it's very clearly an in interpolation, and we still treat it as if it was part of the original. Mm-hmm. Um, the two endings of Mark's gospel that we talked about. And then throughout the years, I mean, there are many other things that he brings up. But throughout the years, there are slight variations here and there. Sentences that are added, sentences that are subtracted. And, you know, maybe not all of them are, you know eyebrow raising and that concerning but some of them might be and so how do you make sense of that and how do you get to what was the original so that we know what we were supposed to know right um so i was at a a meeting of the society of biblical literature the annual conference in i think it was maybe san diego six years ago Mm -hmm. um and there was a guy who was talking about use this book but he was talking about how to think about textual criticism using uh nirvana Really? So they, it was a really excellent paper. Um, so there are th- several versions, if you will, of the uh, song No Apologies by Kurt Cobain. Yeah. So there is the original, there's the album version. Right. So the authorized, what they all decided made, made the cut of the album. But there's also a live bootleg mm. prior to the release of that album. Uh, and the, the chorus is different.
1: Interesting.
0: In Kurt Cobain's personal notebooks. The song lyrics are different. So you have three at least, and there might be another one, three at least different versions of the same song. Yeah. Which one is original? Yeah. Is it the one that Kurt Cobain wrote in his own handwriting that we have? The one that's part of the live bootleg because it predates the authorized one that made the album cut. So he, he presented that as a way to think about these same questions that we're thinking about with text criticism and to kind of note that people who listen to Nirvana's music aren't troubled by three different versions. They're actually kind of excited mm. because they're maybe reflective of three different points in his own life. And Kurt Cobain is a, I mean, a tragic figure, but a fascinating figure. So, mm. um, of course, there are people who read into like deeply into everything that he wrote to see if there were signs of what was to come with like sure. suicide and all that stuff. So, sure, yeah, yeah. So thinking about that, I work at the Amon Carter Museum of American Art in Fort Worth, Texas. Fancy. Uh, so if you're stalking me, that's a lie. But if you're not stalking me, you should have in and check out the museum. We just, we're just about to reopen from a major renovation and remodel, and it looks incredible inside. Um, but we have a sculpture that is called Diana. Mm. And what, the more I've learned about her, the more I think she could be a really great way to think about some of these questions. Mm that don't get bogged down in the, I don't know, the the, the mire of these text-critical questions. <laughs> the bog. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Diana's story, and then we will talk a little bit about how I see some connections here. And just so everybody knows, this is a paper I'm trying to slowly write and pull together. This is my first, like, cohesive presentation of it in any way. Nice. Because um, I'd like to submit it for our regional um, SBL, Society of Biblical Literature. Um, conference that happens in the DFW area every March um, so I'm gonna have like four weeks to write it if I'm going to okay so lots of versions of Diana the first version of Diana um, so Diana is a sculpture by Augustus St. gaudens he's the guy who designed the Lincoln Memorial I believe that sounds I might right be making that up
1: sounds right let's go with it
0: yeah, that or that's the French guy who does the, the angel sculpture at the museum. That looks like one of the, the, the <laughs> weeping angels from the... Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Uh, Every time I see it, I
1: go, don't blink. Don't blink. Don't,
0: don't blink. Where did he die? <laughs> um, anyway, Saint Gustin, um, Augustus St. Gaudens was an incredibly popular sculptor in his time. He lived in the late 1800s, um, died uh, at least by 1908 because it's... Widow commissions and stuff and everything. So, anyway, now Stanford White was the uh, turd bucket who was the architect of.
1: Um, nice description there.
0: <laughs> well, uh, he's a misogynist, a oh. white supremacist, and had you know, some. Then you're being uh, too kind, probably. Yeah, being way too kind. But he was the architect in charge of Madison Square Garden. Oh, um, uh, okay. And so he was friends with Augustus St. Gaudens and he asked him to. Design a sculpture for the very top of the building, um, and they decided on Diana of the Tower, so the Greek goddess, the mm-hmm. Archer. Um, the original version, she was up, the original, the first version was up for like just under a year. Um, she was 18 feet tall, she weighed like 1,200 pounds, uh, maybe more. Um, she was supposed to balance gracefully on her. T- toe like he wanted I, I'll show you but nobody else can see
1: <laughs> I can I'm I'm watching for you. You can
0: you. to the museum and you can see, yeah, yeah. You can see her but she's uh-huh. supposed to balance like this. Sure like gracefully while well, arching.
1: On the on the yes. yeah the big toe. Um
0: but she was too heavy to do that. <laughs> so she had the balance on her on her heel.
1: Whomp, whomp.
0: Uh, and she was supposed to function as a weather vane but again she was too heavy so she <laughs> That's a really spin. big <laughs> weather vane. Um, so <laughs> ultimately, she was removed because St. Gaudens and Stanford White decided that she was just too large for the building. She mm. didn't make sense. Um, so, after a couple of minor moves or whatever, she eventually ended up uh, moving to the top of the Agricultural Building in Chicago. Mm. Um, but a fire ended up destroying her lower half. Oh, no. And then her upper half was either later lost or discarded. Um, but ultimately, the first version of Diana did not survive. Oh, um, Sound familiar. Okay. <laughs> Our second Diana, to replace first Diana, uh, was from 1893, and she is still in existence. Mm. Um, She was redesigned to be a little bit more graceful, um, but she still held true to the same fundamental features. So um, archery (laughs) holding a bow and arrow, if you will, uh, is probably the better way to say it. Um, She's propped up on one foot, though she was able to be up on her toe, Mm -hmm. as originally designed um, but she had a, a little bit more of a graceful stance. Okay. Um, but she was still nude, still the same basic concept. Sure. Um, which, in the <laughs> early 1900s, nude Diana on top of the tower in New York City was the scandal <laughs> uh, of the decade. I'm just, I, there Not a nude kinds, archer! You can go back to the archives, and there are all kinds of like newspaper articles that are like decrying the moral corruption of America because... A s- naked sculpture is in public.
1: A 24-foot naked woman <laughs> sc- archer on top uh, of the building.
0: Yeah. Okay, so this one, the second version, she's smaller. She weighs about 700 pounds, and she's 14 and a half feet tall. I shrunk. Um, they brought her down to scale. Ah, there we go. And she was gilded in gold leaf. Oh. So Ooh. she was like... So during the day, she's shone with mm. the sun reflecting, and then she's the first statue in the U.S. to be lit up by electricity in the, in the evenings. Oh, wow. So... That's cool. She could be seen all the time with her naked... Bodice. Um, She weighed, uh, like I said, much less than the first, and she functioned like she was supposed to. She functioned as a weather vane. Mm. In 1925, um, so she was there from 1893 to 1925, Madison Square Garden was demolished, the original one, and Diana was safely put into storage. Mm. In 1932, she goes to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and she's still there. Oh, wow. Um, her Her gold leaf gilding... Had worn off after years of exposure to the elements. So she's in a little bit worse condition. In 2013, um, the Philadelphia Museum of Art restored her, they regilded her. Um, they found flecks of the gold um, uh-huh. as they were restoring her and like cleaning off the grime um, to make sure they got the carrot in the weight of the gold correct. So sure. it replicated it in that way. But they matted the gold leaf because it was known from contemporary sources that St. Gaudens did not like the look of bright gold at eye level. So they did not stay true to the Diana that was on top of the tower because she wasn't a matted gold. They made a choice to Mm. alter her for their context. There you go. Um, Based off of a tradition that they were handed down, that St. Gaudens didn't like bright gold.
1: Um,
0: So she's still in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. You can still go and see her. And the curator at my museum, Maggie Adler, who um, has worked with, was instrumental in uh, making the cement Diana that we have at my museum displayable. Also worked at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, so she's always worked with a Diana. She said that she has a joke that she will never work for a museum that doesn't have a Diana. <laughs> Fun fact: most museums have a Diana. We'll ah. So the Cement Diana was made in 1894, so right after the second Diana. And this was requested by Stanford White for his own personal use. He mm. wanted her for his garden. Oh, okay. So she's about half the size of the second Diana. I think she's like seven seven something. foot tall. Yeah. Um, she's up on a thing, so it's hard for me to gauge her actual height just mm-hmm. by standing in front of her. Um, and she stood in Stanford White's garden for years. Um, and then she was also used to cast, um, to create two bronze casts in 1928, hmm. and then six bronze casts in 1987. Okay. So she's the mama of eight casts. Wow. Um, okay, so the 19 the two 1928 casts, one of them is in the Met in New York City, Okay. and the other one is also in Fort Worth at Bass Hall. Okay. Um, the one in Bass Hall and the one at the Eamon Carter were both actually... Part of the Amon Carter collection. Mm. They came together. The cement Diana came like as a just take her. They didn't, whoever we got them from didn't want her, I guess. Um, and so eventually the the museum uh, board president at the time, uh, Ruth Carter Stevenson, gifted the one that's in Bass Hall to Bass Hall before its grand opening. Oh, okay. um, and, and the cement Diana stayed in our basement mm. um, or in our. Basement or vaults. Basement sounds like <laughs> the
1: storage room.
0: <laughs> just with her in a closet. No, she, I mean, she was she was in a controlled environment. Um, and then when Maggie came on and discovered that we had her, and they did some work, and they were able to restore her, and she's now on you, and she's incredible. Um, but so those two other versions, and the one at fourth um, at the Met, and I think also the one at Bass Hall are both gilded. Oh, Okay. Um, the cement Diana is not right. Um, she was a garden statue. Yeah. Um, and then of the 1987 casts from her. Three of them are in private collections, which okay. I think is really interesting. One is back at Madison Square Garden. Um, one is at Princeton. And there's one at the Brook Green Gardens in South Carolina. It's like a sculpture garden and wildlife refuge. Okay. Um, okay. So then there are lots of little statuettes, if you will. To make it sure. She's an incredibly she's incredibly popular. Scandalous as she is. Huh. Everybody wants a Diana. So St. Gaudens made... Uh, statuettes of the figure of either 21 inches or 31 inches and that's why I say most museums have one because we color the tabletop version we also have a tabletop version of interesting the um, and then in 1908 St. Gaudens' widow authorized casting of nine busts from the statuettes and then there are apparently some casts of her head at various institutions hmm. Um, So she's sort of all over the place in wildly different capacities. Yeah, Um,
1: interesting. And so
0: with our Diana, the cement Diana, um, I say our because I work on (laughs)
1: it. My Diana. Diana, my collection. It's my Diana.
0: Just kidding. Any coworkers who are listening, I do not think she's mine. Um, But she doesn't have a bow, and there was some concerns from our curatorial staff about. Where is her bow? Uh. Um, they were a little nervous because the curators and conservators that we have on staff now weren't the curators or conservators on staff when she came in. Uh. Um, so they're like, did we lose it? Like, what's going on? Um, as it turns out, they've one of Stanford White's uh, grand or great grandchildren or whatever um, asked our museum, would you like to see a photo of her in the garden? And she didn't have a bow in the photo, uh, from, Stanford, or from Stanford White's garden. And we were also able to see the the base that she was put on, so we could mimic that. And we were able to see that she was not painted or gilded in any way; she was always just cement. So um, we can kind of replicate uh-huh. the garden
1: version, uh, the garden version of yeah. her. Yeah.
0: Um. But there are some there are some different differing versions of. Uh, if she has a bow or if she doesn't and some of them she does the one on on top of uh, Madison Square Garden the original one she had a bow but she also had this copper like scarfing type thing that was intended to billow in the wind yeah. Um. so there's lots of different variations yeah and if she has a bow or not and St. Goddance is kind of willy-nilly about that interesting he um, had reasons for whatever mm-hmm, the first mm-hmm. Diana also had the coppery whatever but she just couldn't function as a weather vane <laughs> right so. Uh, the, it just didn't really work out huh. so thinking about all these different variations of Diana um, it, all of this kind of brings me to some questions that I think relate to textual criticism and why the story of Diana might be a helpful way to teach text criticism in a classroom or in a church setting or something um, so it really raises the question of what is the original version, mm-hmm. and what makes it the original version. Yeah, is it the first Diana that didn't survive um, because she wasn't functional? Yeah, and nobody really wanted her. <laughs> um, yeah, and but then you also have so is is it the authorized version that's mm. on top of Madison Square Gardens at first? So the second version of Diana that ended up becoming the functional piece that they wanted. Yeah, and the landmark that's now in the in the Philadelphia Museum of Art, because um, she's the authorized version. Mm-hmm. Or is she is the original version, the cement version, for Stanford White because she was used for personal use yeah. uh, in a garden for private consumption? Or she's not the most aesthetically beautiful version of Diana the Seaman one isn't, but she did cast, she's the mother of six other versions that might be considered more beautiful, bronze casts and gilded casts so they're prettier, mm-hmm. are they more authoritative? Yeah. Like, Are they a better representation, I guess, of what St. Gauden's vision was? Is the Philadelphia Museum of Art's changing of the gold to be more matted, a better reflection of St. Gauden's intention Yeah. than the one that was on Madison Square Garden? So there's all different kinds of ways that she, I think, Reveals these types of questions to be fruitless mm-hmm, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Each of these different versions has done, has had a different purpose and a different context, and some of them didn't work and some of them didn't survive. Yeah. And um, some of them work for personal consumption and they're not for public consumption. Some of them work for public consumption, but not for personal consumption. And so, um, so I think about all these variations, all these different Dianas that are they all the same and they're all different. I just think that they raise some really interesting questions that we can maybe apply to text criticism. So thinking about we've got these three different versions or four or five or six, however many there of Jesus' teaching around divorce. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. What which, which one's the authoritative one? Is it the one that works well for you? Yeah. Which for most people that is that's how that's usually, that's usually yeah. Usually what it is. Although I will say in terms of Jesus teaching for divorce that is the one text that modern Christians are very 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 comfortable ignoring.
1: Oh yeah. Um, oh, which yeah. don't get me wrong disclaimer I think, that, yeah. I
0: think there's very good reason um, you should never stay in a bad marriage.
1: No. Um, <laughs> if it's abusive especially it, if it's abusive you need but, to leave.
0: Um, but I, you know, we hold on to obscure texts about don't get a tattoo. Uh, but, you know, mm-hmm. in my tradition, the red letters, you know, what yeah. Jesus said, that's what you live by. We're very comfortable ignoring some of some yeah. them. So just recognize that you do it. And maybe you can uh, relax some of your stances on some other hardline issues that you've taken because you're very comfortable relaxing
1: on other issues. Canon within a canon. Canon Wh- within a canon. Which is what you yeah. said last time, yeah. Or with the inerrancy. We pick and choose. hmm mm-hmm. One thought I had about uh, so thinking about the original well the not the original, the uh, the first Diana, mm-hmm. the one that ended up not being it wasn't functional and mm-hmm. it ended up, you know, going away. That one of my arguments for a lot of people that I've talked to seem to really be scared about if you can't get to the original text or the original meaning, then that means uh, <laughs> you can so cough great for
0: podcasting you're
1: you're a human, you can cough. Um, the If you can't get back to the original text or the original meaning, then w- what we have now is spurious or is, you know, not we can't trust it. But like first Diana, I've always thought maybe what's the flip side of that idea of a positive spin in that maybe the redactors, the editors, were really the ones preserving what needed to be preserved so that, you know, we don't know what all went into the transmission of texts and how we got what we got today exactly. We have good ideas and we can look back at certain moments in history and see what the texts look like in certain communities, but... um, the fact, that, the fact that it got from then until now is a huge sign mm-hmm. that it was important, obviously, but that there were people taking care of it, so to speak, people making new casts of the text, basically, yeah. to continue it moving forward to be useful and functional for their communities and, you know, in truth-telling, depending on how you want to think about it. But, um, yeah, this idea of handling the text and... Reshaping it and keeping it for what it needs to be as the faithful act of, you know, having a text and having truth and having meaning, versus we need the first version. Right. The first version is the one we need. It's like, no, I don't think that's necessarily.
0: We might not have it because it wasn't useful.
1: Yeah. It didn't
0: do what it was supposed to do. And communities over the years decided what about it was functional and what wasn't and swapped it out for a second Diana, if you will. Um, or made a different cast of it and gilded her up or de-gilded her or threw her in a garden or mm-hmm. on top of a building. I mean, I think that it's a, it's just a... it's, It's not useful to get hung up on a author's intention because, first of all, we don't have the original text. But second of all, it doesn't matter... If we did, because as soon as I write something, even this podcast, for instance, sure, I've just told you all of the stuff about Diana, and what I intended for you to learn about it doesn't matter yeah. in comparison yep. to what you actually learned from it. Yep. Those might be two wildly different things, and somebody might be like, "No, no, Jill meant," and in reality, nobody can get at what Jill meant unless Jill tells you what Jill meant, and you still might not understand, right? Because uh, I'm incoherent most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, that's sort of an approach. I'm wanting to I'm wanting to write a paper around this and think about. It. I thought the Nirvana one was a really cool way. That's super useful. Um, yeah. To think about these same questions of originality and authority, um, and how the text had meaning. But I, I I thought whenever I started hearing this Diana story at work, as I was learning about this piece, I was like, she's fascinating. Like her story is crazy, and I think it could be really useful. For illustrating how incomplete that line of questioning is about what's original, because some might be like, okay, the 18 foot tall one was original, that's what we gotta get back to, but Mm -hmm. she wasn't functional. And we can't get back to her, she no longer exists. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what can we learn about the first Diana from the second Diana, Mm -hmm. or the cement Diana, or the sixth? castings made from our great casting. so anyway I thought this would just be fun um, I think this episode and our inerrancy episode if you haven't yeah. <laughs> listened to the inerrancy episode you should go back and listen to that one because I think all, it's this is all part of one big conversation it's a
1: continuation of some it's, of those it's definitely thoughts. a
0: continuation and these are, these are things that really work together in it so uh, again the book is The Living Text of the Gospels DC Parker or David Parker yeah um and it's a it really is for I've read many a textual criticism book in my day. Um having to take Greek classes you end up reading a lot of text critical. Um and this is really accessible. He's really
1: um It's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, he writes doing, his style is really good.
0: Um he's kind to his reader, as my dissertation advisor Doctor Carter always says whenever I am not clear about something he says. Just say it again. Be kind to your reader. Don't make them go and dig it up again. Yep. Um, so, yeah, you should definitely check that out. Um, any final thoughts on text criticism, and Diana?
1: Text criticism? No, I think that's uh, it's probably gonna do it.
0: All right. Well, we're. I don't think we've plugged our Twitter and Instagrams before. No. We're I on have. Twitter at NotYourGrandma6, which I should have when I set up our Twitter. I probably could have picked another at name but we I can, like, we that can, works we can edit it um or i think you can just search us by like not your grandma podcast or something like that or not your grandma's bible study podcast one of the two and then instagram it's not your grandma's bible study podcast um we have a website which basically just has our RSV feed and yeah um
1: twitter and instagram but, are the yeah
0: those are the, the primary ways if you really want to communicate with us um of course our email um not your grandma podcast at gmail.com um, we will take suggestions and ideas um, we're both keep in mind very much in the thick of dissertation <laughs> writing um, so some of what we decide to write on are ideas that are already bouncing around in our head mm-hmm. things we've already written um, but as we get more comfortable with the format we'll hopefully be able to start incorporating some newer fresher research um, I'm literally like uh, I'm- so close to being done um, <laughs> I think a month from now, nice. I should I should have it finished. And um, that'll be very exciting.
1: <laughs> Yay. And so I
0: can maybe break, take on some suggestions. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So check us out, rate, review, subscribe. If you're gonna rate us, five stars would be nice. <laughs> Please leave your three stars at home. If you think we're mediocre, we don't need. Why take
1: your time? And actually, writing a review is—it's. I mean, think of like YouTube and mm. and everything else. Like the more engagement ratings are good. Please, yes. please rate. But the reviews are really good because then if anybody else, you know, obviously is surfing through and finds the podcast, if they see what you wrote about it, then they have more feedback on what it's about. Yeah. So just do us a solid. Please.
0: Please. We want to keep talking, but <laughs> um, I think that's it.
1: Uh, amen and Selah. See you next time.